Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, today's episode is brought to you by the letter S. We take the S Express and talk about whether a surplus makes sense, securing freedom of speech, and a struggling economy in need of support. Just don't call it a stimulus. We also tackle your questions and hear from The Guardian's Catherine Murphy. That's Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny. Welcome to Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny, a joint production of Policy Forum at the Crawford School of Public Policy and the Australian National University. Now, with me here at the barbecue hot plate of politics and public affairs is the esteemed political scientist, Dr. Maria Taflaga. Hi there, Maria. It seems that uh, with tax cuts being talked about, uh, industrial relations reform uh, now on the table, it seems, uh, the government's obviously looking to repeal the Medivac laws. Are we seeing the, the makings of a, of, of a government agenda emerging after an election where they didn't really have much other than those tax cuts uh, on the agenda? Well, we can only we can only hope that that's what we're um, seeing. It's still all very uh, detail light, and and repealing things I don't think is necessarily um, an agenda. I, f- I feel like this is a sort of uh, wait and see. Yeah, yeah. Yes. It's also my great pleasure to welcome to Democracy Sausage for the first time Catherine Murphy. She's political editor, of course, at the Guardian, fellow insiders panelist, an author, a thinker of great note. Uh, what do you think, uh, Catherine? Uh, they uh, they got something happening here, or is or are we just sort of seeing a bit of kind of uh, rhetorical kind of uh, dancing around at the moment? Well, it's uh, you would hope that the government has an agenda, given it's just won an election. You would hope that it has some idea of a program that it wants to roll out for the next three years. The only problem with it, of course, is that uh, they were very detail light. During the election, I think, as you mentioned at the top of the show, Mark, it's, uh, they didn't really give the voters much of a sense of what they would do uh, in this coming term, apart from not be Labor and also roll out income tax cuts. So while it, it's good if, the, if Scott Morrison has done some thinking about what uh, government needs to be over the next three years and what he wants to achieve, I think the difficulty for the Prime Minister will be the the extent of his mandate to pursue any reform that sort of that that, that we might term bold. Uh, I think voters weren't weren't told what the government would do over the next three years, so that creates the conditions where everything that's unveiled is a surprise, mm. ipso facto. Uh, voters are generally not thrilled with surprises. Uh, They're not thrilled with anything that can be demonstrated as a broken promise. So I think that'll be one of the major challenges Scott Morrison's got really is. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's this sort of interplay between, um, on the one hand, this obligation that the government has to actually find something to do, 
uh, you know, there's been a lot of commentary about that because they did run so much on just keeping Labor out of office and delivering tax cuts and keeping the economy strong. Since the election, we found out, well, there's a whole lot of reasons to think the economy is anything but strong. Yeah. Weaknesses in a, in a range of areas. The Reserve Bank, of course, moving the cash rate to a new record low. As Jim Chalmers, the shadow treasurer, points out, that's uh, less than half the, the, the rate at which it was during the GFC, the cash mm-hmm. rate. So obviously, the Reserve Bank's very concerned about trying to keep activity and confidence going in the economy. Yeah. So the government at one level is is sort of has this, you know, um, kind of very policy light approach uh, through the election campaign. But it ha- so it has to find stuff to do. But as you say, it needs to find stuff to do that is broadly consistent with uh, its, its um, you know, fairly it's, thin it's mandate. It's non-disclosure during the campaign. <laughs> Yeah, as you yeah. say, it doesn't want to it's surprise a, people with radical uh, policy changes. Well, look, well, they can. Obviously, they've won an election. They can do that. Uh, I, I would say that's um, that I'd say that's a risky thing for mm. the prime minister to do, particularly as uh, as you know, was it wasn't disclosed in terms of the of the management of the economy, Mark. That's exactly right. They've. They're in a bit of a bind with that too. Now, the Reserve Bank unusually is very forthright, has been over the last couple of months through Mm. the election campaign and since. It's basically saying to the government, look, guys, we can't do this all ourselves. Mm. The interest rate cuts are not going to be sufficient. You can only go so far for a start. and There's not much room left well, in monetary policy. They're, they're at emergency levels, yeah. right? So yeah. that has that as a lever to stimulate the economy is is sort of at its at its zenith. You really can't do anything more. Now the governor's been saying to the government, infrastructure spending, tax cuts. Like bring it on, baby, mm. because we've got no more petrol in our tank. So you're going to need to do something. So again, we see this sort of interesting manoeuvre on the part of the government. Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, doesn't want to say, doesn't want to call anything stimulus. No, no. because that sounds a bit scary. Yeah. That sounds like the economy wasn't exactly as you described well, it during the election. Like what Labor did? Well, it's just it just that again. This is the problem with non-disclosure. Yeah. You know, it, they campaigned on having a strong economy. Now, the economy is not strong. Now, they're in a situation where they need to stimulate the mm. economy, but they can't call it stimulus and they can't look panicky because that's a bit out of step with the narrative during the election. And then there's a further bind. Now, uh, I can see it a, a scenario before not too long, whereas obviously the government is very focused on getting its tax cuts through the parliament and it's saying to actors in the parliament, it's all or nothing, guys. You're going to pass this whole package. Now, that uh, that is very costly in fiscal terms. The government is also promising a surplus next year. Yeah. Now, that's quite problematic in, in a set of circumstances where the economy is coming off. It needs stimulus. The, the public policy imperative right at the moment is stimulate the economy, not balance the books. So, the government then is in this set of circumstances where the election promise up in lights was you're going to get a surplus next year. And a strong economy. And a strong economy, brackets, which didn't exist, mm. and tax cuts, brackets, which we can't afford. <laughs> uh, and and the Reserve Bank governor standing in the middle of it saying, uh, guys, could someone do something here because monetary policy isn't going to do it all? So, yeah. so, so from my point of view, I think that really the only way out for the government is is to brazen it out and to put up that the economy is, you know, in in new dire circumstances, quote unquote. And um, what, and you bet we just discovered that today, did we? We didn't know that during the election. 
Yeah, no, I think we did know that during the election. It's just no one wanted to talk about it. But that's it. the point. No, I know that. I know that. But what is, their, what is their alternative? I mean, they don't have a mandate because they didn't say what they were going to do. So the only thing they can do is say, well, you know, circumstances are now such, so the response needs to be this. This is what a responsible government would do. Because I do think they, they are... have a mandate, though. I mean, they, I think they have a mandate to keep the economy strong. Mm. And the thing is, yeah. that mandate runs counter to, as Catherine points out, the, you know, the surplus promise, really. Yes. That seems to be what, uh, you know, what all the uh, evidence suggests, what the Reserve Bank governor is kind of gently hinting at. The government, the coalition has made a, a big thing about saying Labor hasn't delivered a budget surplus since 1989, you know, yeah. uh, and we're going to show you that coalition governments always do that. Uh, they certainly were able to do that through the Howard years when, you know, things were very favourable for them because they did a lot of spending as well during that time. Mm. But I think Josh Frydenberg is really committed to this um, this political idea of delivering a surplus, you know, getting the value of that. The question is, can he afford to do that in, say, the, the, the relatively small surplus that's been promised for the end of this financial year or and, and then perhaps engage in some stimulatory spending or will they actually need to act before then and put that surplus, as Wayne Swan had to, uh, put it on hold well, for yeah, the sake of uh, keeping 28 years of, of unbroken growth turning into 29. I, I guess that's my point. They yeah. actually have to pay, play the ground they're on. And they will have to bear the consequences for all the strategic snookerings that they've created mm. for themselves. But what is what is their alternative? Like their levers are executive power, right? They're the government. They're responsible. If, if Labor doesn't want to pass their tax package and they can't get anyone else to pass it, it's ultimately their problem because they're the government. And so, you know, they do have to make some difficult choices. Um, and that's, that's, that's on them. Yeah. Well, it's going to be really interesting to see the way they play that because, um, as I say, the, the indicators in the economy are, are really quite, you know, they're, they're sort of gathering quite quickly, it seems, about, you know, the weak economy. Um, is industrial relations reform one of the ways they're going to try and articulate this? And what are the risks of doing that? I mean, that that is in the category uh, of something that wasn't much discussed during the election campaign. We know there's, the coalition has a very checkered political history with uh, flirting with industrial relations changes. It does tend to focus the mind. It does tend to divide the electorate in ways that is not always good for the coalition. What do you think, Catherine? Are they going to get muscular here or is it just going to be a kind of more of a, you know, a bit of a rhetorical sop to business without all that much happening? Well, they've got to, again, they've got to be careful because uh, there's a few different elements here. Now, we've, we've been through an election cycle where the Labor Party he was very focused on wages, very focused mm. on wages uh, for, well, for good reason, because we've had anemic wages growth for quite a long period of time. Now, interestingly, that, that message didn't resonate, I don't think, quite as much as Labor in, anticipated that it would, because uh, Labor was also bowling up some policies that sort of came after people's assets in their mind, right? And so we've sort of been in this interesting I think, transition in the economy where we're not so perhaps as, as a society, we're not as focused on wages as we once were. We're now looking at a broader set of parameters. So it's it's what you earn and what you own, uh, shares, properties, that sort of investment ment mentality. Now, there's a point to me, there's a long-winded preamble, but there's a point to it. Now, so 
on one on the one hand, the government might have some room to move because it may have reached a, a deduction going through that election cycle that people are not as focused on their wage outcomes as they were 10 years ago, right? That may be a, a logical deduction mm. from the last election cycle. However, you wouldn't want to extrapolate that out too much because, again, industrial reform generally is code for flexibility, which is code for let's uh, get rid of over time uh, you know, employment conditions yeah. that, that increase the cost of labour. Rigidities right? uh, in, the, Rigidities. in the labour market, which, yes. which also can be read as protections for workers well, exactly. against capricious Usu- Usually income protection, yeah, usually income, that. But also job security and as job well. Security. You can't just be exactly. dismissed to, to, you know, at, at willy-nilly. Exactly. Uh, so again, I think, look, the government's, uh, the government's got some room to move there, mm. perhaps, but it depends what it is. And a wholesale program that either in practice does jeopardise workers' income security or job security, I think, as Sir Humphrey would say, that's a rather bold plan. Yeah, at this rather courageous. Point. Courageous. Courageous, yeah. courageous at this point in time. But anyway, we'll have, we we obviously have to see what it is. Yeah. In, also in this space, in, interestingly, is the uh, the pivot that Labor is making since the election. Jim Chalmers was on Insiders on Sunday uh, talking about, uh, you know, some of the language uh, that Labor used, saying that perhaps, you know, referring to people on $200,000 as having been you know the top end of town. Two hundred thousand dollar incomes makes them the top of the uh, top end of town. He was saying, "Look, we got that messaging wrong. It didn't resonate with the electorate. He's fessing up to it himself, um, and saying that you know Labor's assessment now is that if you're on a good wicket, good on you, and that's what we're all about. We're all about aspiration. That's what Labor's already always been about, according to you know the new line. It's what what, what do you make of that, Maria? Is that is that um, is that a recognition that they just got it uh, horribly wrong and that they're going to try and reframe their political position or is it, um, is it, and is it going to be convincing? Okay, so I think this is quite interesting because I think $200,000 puts you in the fifth percentile of income earners. So it might not be the top end of town in, in, the, in terms of, you know, Mr. Harborside Mansion or something like that, mm. but you are really well off. The, the median income in this country is is around uh, $60,000. So that's, uh, you know, almost four times as much. Um, but yes, it is a recognition uh, that Labor is returning to, I guess, what we would kind of call Blairite new Labor, mm-hmm. where um, where we don't want to, um, we don't want to do anything to, to people at the top end of the scale. You know, they're doing great. Um, we don't want to, we don't want to harm aspiration. Um, but I guess, I think what's actually more interesting to watch in terms of Labor over the long run is whether or not Labor actually can uh, play the ground it's on or if it fights the last campaign. Because I think if it fights the last campaign, it's going to run into similar problems that it ran into this one, which was not being flexible to what is actually um, going on um, in, in the economy and not actually listening um, to voters and calibrating that message accordingly. Because there is evidence to suggest that, you know, people aren't satisfied with governance, that people aren't necessarily satisfied with how their lives are run in this country and that they they do want a fair society, right? But they might not necessarily want to give up certain things that they have. And so there is scope for Labor to craft uh, a message about what Australia will look like for the next 20 to 30 years, what that vision will be, that is to the centre-left, just as the government has the imperative of trying to tell us what 
their vision to the centre-right is because that is currently a, the giant unknown in Australian politics. No one really knows how to get out of this hole, right? Um, you know, when, when we've played the monetarist cards and they're not working anymore. So what is the next sort of way of, uh, of um, improving the Australian way of life? And both parties need to articulate that and that's, that's where the contest should be. Mm. Yeah, it's a very interesting debate. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, I'd like to hear some of the questions from people who've, uh, who've been talking to us. And if you're interested in engaging with us, we're, we're very eager for you to do that. You can do it via Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. The Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod. And the email is podcast at policyforum.net. So we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, let's deal with some of those questions. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right. Well, uh, let's look at some of the questions we've had from uh, listeners. Uh, there's some very interesting ones here dealing with some really big questions, Maria, that uh, I think you know could be the subject of entire podcasts by themselves. Absolutely. So uh, I guess to, we may as well we may as well kick off with the biggest one here. Mark Zanker asks us, in effect, uh, is this the end of democracy in Australia as we know it? Who wants to take this one? <laughs> well, there is at least a simple answer to that, and that's no. Yeah. So, uh, so that is that's that's simple. Uh, I gather that there's some context to Mark's question, which is sort of really about trust, isn't it? And yes, about yes. And about um, uh, you know who owns Australia's democracy, I think is that is the underpinning of his question. That's right. right yes. So and and those are all legitimate questions, and they they go to the fact that uh, we have seen extremely low levels of trust in Australian democracy, particularly in the last few election cycles. We've seen the share of the minor party vote at the highest that it's been since the Second World War. Um, we've seen, you know, it was interesting in this election, for example, that that a lot of the protest vote went to Pauline Hanson and Clive, uh, Clive Palmer rather than to Labor, which was running a change election uh, pitch and so normally would pick up the protest vote, yeah. but, but didn't in this cycle. And didn't go to Australian Conservatives either, I might just no, say. No, well, well that's true. Yes, poor Corey Bernardi. Anyway, um, <laughs> but, so look, is it the end of democracy? No. Um, and and is Australia's democracy, this is my view anyway, obviously, self-evidently, um, is Australia's democracy the worst, most parlously placed democracy in the world at the moment? No. No, it's a long way from it. A long way from it. But are there problems? You bet there are. And Absolutely. and we need to look at ways in which we can restore trust in the system. And there are there are many practical ways that can be done. Whether or not the government will do them, I think it's entirely moot. Which is kind of interesting, actually, is that the AES study uh, basically does show this this decline in Australian trust. election study. Yes, yeah. the Australian electoral study. Sorry, uh, which is out in the field right now. Very exciting. Uh, it does show this decline in trust basically since the election of Rudd. But what it doesn't show is a decline in uh, efficacy. In government. So people still believe that, you know, if I go to Centrelink and if Catherine goes to Centrelink and Mark goes to Centrelink, we will all be treated in the same way, which may not be very well, but we will be treated <laughs> in
in the <laughs> same yeah. way, right? Um, um, and I guess what I would also say to you, um, Mark, is that uh, if, you, if you sort of take the really long view of politics uh, in this country, in other countries, like we do go through um, cycles where, uh, yes, uh, things don't go so well. It's often linked to the performance of the economy, mm. uh, which puts an awful lot of pressure on our democratic inst- institutions to uh, essentially come up with new imaginative and creative solutions because the sort of uh, things that people understand to work stop working because society changes, because technology changes society, because the Mm. economy evolves. So um, whilst there are certainly all kinds of... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Problems. Um, Maybe I'm complacent, but have faith. Have faith, Mark. Yes. Catherine Murphy, you've written with great uh, insight, I think, into this whole notion of disruption and what's happening in uh, in our democracies, what's happening in our economy. Um, is it your sense, because there's certainly a strong discourse on, on social media about this, and perhaps this existed before social media was there and we just didn't know about it, but this sentiment. But is, did you have a sense that this past election – the performance of partisan media was more brazen, more persuasive, more uh, influential perhaps in the result than has been common in Australian elections? Well, it's it's hard to say and thank you. That's a great compliment you pay me. So thank you for that. Um, the is Was it worse in this election? Well, it was, it was certainly naked in this election mm. cycle. There was no sort of pussyfooting around uh, who was supporting whom. Um, I don't know that that's unprecedented, though. We've got to remember every time I say the media environment is is you know is now has now just descended into snarling enclaves, mm. which is you know what it looks like. Uh, wise heads like Michelle Grattan say to me, "Yes, yes, mate, but how about 1975 when you know staff at the Australian went on strike because of uh, concerns about uh, coverage in in their paper?" And this is obviously just one paper. It's more than News Corp that we're talking about. Um, yeah, it's an interesting point, but I mean, you could sort of make the response to it, I suppose, that there was a political crisis. There was a, a, a you know, a, a gathering political crisis right up to the dismissal in 1975. And yes, it's true that uh, media uh, played a partisan role and became increasingly hostile to, you know, the, the, the shambles that was the government, the, you know, the various stories that were happening and, and you know, the, the problems the government had economically and policy-wise as well as uh, in terms of personal. Mm. Um, but here we had, uh, if you look at the last election, we didn't have that kind of crisis at no, all, or, or to no, the extent no, no. that we did, no. we had a crisis in the government side and yet conservative media uh, were absolutely unrestrained in their condemnation of, of Labor all the way through. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I think I saw one front page that the Australian did, for example, that was arguably neutral. You know, picture of Bill and Bill Shorten and Chloe, and said something. You know, Bill's fair go uh, tax rise, 
that was kind of neutral, maybe even positive because it was certainly a nice picture, but pretty well every other front page. Uh, oh, I'm, was, I'm, not, know, I'm, I'm not disputing that yeah. for one minute. And it I reckon the, the question to ask when people say, oh, I don't know about that, well, you know, what would the Liberal Party have changed about any of those front pages? Mm. Not much. No, 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 no. That's absolutely right. But the, but the landscape, we're talking about disruption um, – We've, we've got to take into account a few different factors. We've got to take into account that the media environment is now, is now enclaves. It's now it, basically it, it's, it's outlets talking to rusted on audiences, yeah. often appealing to them through emotive triggers uh, because that's, that's the metric. That's the metric mm. for survivability in the media landscape. It's sort of business model journalism really where you're talking to people who, who like your product because they agree with it. Yeah. So they're just enjoying being told what they already think. Exactly. And, and there's not a lot of talking across enclaves, which is, which is very bad for democracy in my view. That's why I've been so concerned about it. That's why I focused on it such a lot over the last few years. I think the trends... The, the sort of disruption that's occurred in the media market is pushing us in a direction that is not good for democracy, first point. Second point, it's not all about the mainstream media. You ask me about influence. Um, I don't know. We'd, it'd be interesting to measure how influential the, the News Corp publications were in marshalling sentiment for the Conservative government. But the other thing we need to bear in mind is social media. Mm. Uh, and one of the uh, obvious uh, elements of the last federal election was this was the first election cycle where fake news proliferated on social media. Yeah. And by that, I don't mean political exaggerations or rubbish that politicians say in election cycles. I mean fake news. Yeah, I like, mean like that Labor is going to implement been... a 40% death tax, yeah. something the, the opposition never at any stage flagged, mm. foreshadowed. Mm. Now, I'm not saying Labor won the election because of the fake news, but we at Guardian Australia did quite a deep investigation about this that we ran a couple of weekends ago. Now, I don't know how important it was, but the candidates uh, certainly thought it, it was a significant issue. So that's the other element of disruption, Mark. It's not only what's happening in mainstream yeah. media and how influential or otherwise it is. There's this other mode of communication, which now the, a great bulk of Australians uh, basically get their information from. And during this cycle, we saw proliferation of misinformation for the first time in an Australian federal election. Yeah. So this, I guess, links really nicely um, to two questions. Uh, one from Liam Hughes, uh, who essentially is sort of asking, uh, do we need legislative changes to protect free speech? This is in the context of the AFP raids. And um, and Joanne Chen, whose birthday it is apparently today. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> um, what impact would a, a Bill of Rights potentially have had if uh, at the time of the raids? So... Well, I mean, uh, it, it's one of the things that's been pointed out by Michael Kirby and a number of others that uh, there is no guaranteed right of free speech in Australia, and there is no, there is a, you know, a increasing fetters on uh, on the press as a result of um, and on whistleblowers as a result of the sort of ever tightening grip of security laws in in Australia. There has been a very steady stream of these things, increment by increment, and of course, people don't get particularly upset about it. For, partly for reasons we've just been discussing, people don't get particularly upset about journalists being, uh, you know, having their houses searched or whatever, it, it, you know, because they're, they're not held in particularly high regard to begin with. But it is a real concern, I think, for the health of the democracy and for the uh, the, the whole, um, I guess, aggregate 
ability of any society to have accountability with you know for, with its governments uh, that uh, we don't have these freedoms guaranteed. So, would a bill of rights um, or something similar be a, a step forward? I'd say yes, it would. I think what a lot of people don't realise is because we live in such a robust democracy and Australians are freewheeling, plain-speaking types, that we we really don't live in a free speech society in Australia. We really don't. Uh, we don't have a, a constitutional protection for a free press. We do not have a constitutional protection for free speech. Now, the High Court has given us an implied freedom of political communication, so there is there is some framework there that, that protects what we do for yeah. a living, uh, which is, after all, informing the public. That is what we do. Uh, but yes, I, I agree with you, Mark. I think uh, it's, it's past time that we look at uh, the balance of protections in Australian society between the, the correct and proper need of, for, for security agencies to keep Australians safe and also for journalists to keep Australians safe through other means, which is disclosing things that are in the public interest. And I would say we need to have uh, you know a, a better public debate and I would hope to see a greater public appetite for you know accountability generally speaking. I mean, I was just looking the other day, for example, at the um, uh, you know the amazing story that came out in January, uh, February, even I think of 2018, about Malcolm Turnbull donating 1.75 million dollars to the Liberal Party campaign in 2016. Mm, you know, yes. it was it was 18 months later mm. when we mm. found out that the this enormous this this you know this uh, a huge amount of money more than most people will ever see more than most ha- people's houses are worth mm. uh, simply handed over to the Liberal Party in the dying days of that election campaign. We know that the coalition got through that election campaign by one seat. Uh, we don't know what the sort of details of it were, but the money was handed over in a way that meant the disclosure didn't have to happen for eighteen months. And yet no one seems to get upset about that. So it seems to me, I know that's not specifically related to press freedom, but But it it is related to to trust, which is what we were talking about. It relates to trust and it relates to accountability. We need to see real-time declaration uh, or, 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 um, you know, uh, divulging of where money is coming from so that we can see how our politics is operating. We need to have, you know, more discussion, I think, about the various ways in which we can hold our, our, our politicians to account. Yeah, I think the entire architecture for um, scrutiny at the federal level is in need of a great overhaul. Um, and I'm quite interested to see, now that the government has been returned, uh, where they take the, uh, the Commonwealth Integrity Commission, I believe yes. I believe it's called, um, which is an absolutely minimalist um, model. Um, and um, they'll sort of now be under some pressure to, to actually take that. Um, somewhere. Is there an appetite, though, in the parliament to support a review of the cumulative effect of all of this legislation in the security space, which is chilling and constraining the reporting of uh, public interest information? Is there an appetite for that in the parliament, do you think? It's a tepid appetite. I wouldn't call it any any more robust than that. you know, the the Labor Party has supported each of these tranches uh, and, and to its credit has attempted to try and ameliorate some of the worst of uh, the various tranches. But the, the problem, getting back to media coverage, I mean, the problem for, uh, you know, actors in the parliament who aren't inclined to give the security agencies everything they want is that they face very hostile media coverage when they determine that civil rights is... is a legitimate part of the discussion. Yes. So we sort of 
we we see these you know the sections of the media playing you know what I would describe as sort of purse lipped hall monitors you know sort of whipping mm. whipping um, other people into shape uh, you know in the interests of of the state in the interests of of increasing state power which has always been a really bizarre element of this debate a, a truly bizarre element that of is this a bizarre debate. element of the debate I mean it's, I, that's a brilliant um, you know picture that you paint there I think it makes the point very well and it, it, it is really quite mediocre the idea that we would have media organizations playing that role you know um, actually as you say sort of whipping for the state uh, rather than uh, rather than more robustly defending the idea of as much accountability as much freedom of speech and expression and exposure and transparency as can be done without compromising the national security yeah. or the safety yeah, yeah. of the I mean we have got that I mean in fairness to them before I'm sure we need to move on but in fairness to uh, the full spectrum of the media companies we have got there over the last part, couple of weeks, but you know it would have been useful if you know some of this discussion could have been happening five years ago, for example, and it really wasn't. So I, I think it is that kind of lack of consistency, um, particularly in some media players um, who are much more exercised when a perceived threat to them directly. Uh, is at play that they'll kind of come out and defend this. And this is not just in this instance, this happened in the past as well. And you can kind of see how that would make the public cynical, right, Mm. about Mm. the the purpose of um, the fourth estate, which is supposedly about um, informing the public if they're sort of seen to be not necessarily doing that when it doesn't suit them, but only when it does. Um, and so I guess this relates really nicely to our to our last question, which is from Jack O'Sullivan. And, and Jack was interested in our conversation from last week where we were talking about people's media consumption uh, patterns and uh, the, the the rise of the number of people or just the, the large number of people who don't really know what their political affiliation is and these people are less likely to fact check and, and all of that. And so this led Jack to kind of ask us whether or not we think that compulsory voting is a good thing um, or given this lack of fact-checking that perhaps this is a danger. Who wants to take this meeting? Oh, can I take it? Go, yeah. Oh, my God. Compulsory voting is... is Never change compulsory voting. Sorry, Jack. Like, hang in there, mate. Um, <laughs> part of being in a democracy is that all kinds of people vote, um, and that's good. That is actually a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, I've got to say I'm, I'm with you on that. Oh. I, the idea that we would um, get to a situation like in the US where so much effort is put into getting the people out to vote, mm. you know, and so you almost have a, a, a built-in uh, requirement to make people either – Angry, or as I've described it in something I wrote once, either angry or shit scared. Mm. They're the two sort of um, you know modes that you need to get otherwise uncommitted people to the polling booths, and that is not the kind of mindset that you would ideally have for making a sober judgment about what's best, what's you know what's the best set of economic policies and social policies and it's, uh, yeah, it's environmental not policies. Yeah. You, know, you want you want people to be making. Cool and 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 reasoned judgments, not having political parties, um, you know, seeking to animate people with with rage or mm. fear mm. Uh, in order to get them to vote, and that that is the situation you have when you don't have people required to go to the polling. Like group. it's hundred percent right, bang on. Um, in terms of the emotional triggers, the other dimension to it is money, though. Yeah, I mean that's that is the other dimension to non compulsory voting is that. Uh, people with the biggest resources win because it's it's very 
cost-intensive to run a get-out-the-vote campaign, mm. which is what has to happen in democracies where there is non-compulsory voting. So um, if people are concerned about the influence of private money in their democracy, the worst thing you could do, Jack, seriously, is move to non-compulsory voting because then you have an arms race. You literally have an arms race. You have an emotional arms race in terms of the way political parties present themselves to the voting public. You also have a financial arms race because uh, look at Clive Palmer. I mean, you can say, look at Clive Palmer. He didn't get one seat and he spent 50 million. Fair enough. But you can also say, look at Clive Palmer, who was the most effective super PAC in mm. the Australian election. Absolutely. Uh, and that is uh, that is a function of cash. That is a function of means. And if people need to get out the vote, cost money, you don't look I'm, – I'm sounding like I'm schooling, Jack. I sound like I'm your mother. That's terrible. Um, but it's <laughs> like really, really trust me, you don't want this. What do you think, Maria? Well, yes. So, I look, I'm Australian. So, of course, I have drunk the Kool-Aid on compulsory voting. Everyone in Australia, generally speaking, has drunk the Kool-Aid uh, on this. Uh, internationally, um, a lot of my colleagues find our compulsory voting regime really strange. Um, but there is actually a lot of um, research to suggest exactly what you two were saying, right, that um, – it does create different sets of incentives that parties need to fulfil. So they don't necessarily have to pitch to the centre in quite the same way, particularly because we don't have proportional representation as well, right? So there's no coalition forming afterwards. Mm. Uh, so that creates polarisation. Um, and the other sort of dimension is is that compulsory voting actually improves representation for people who are really disadvantaged. So poorer people and younger people vote in higher rates in this country than they do in the United Kingdom or the US and so on exactly. and so forth. And so um, – and I guess that's why that truism about Australian politics, well, the Australian people never get it wrong, is broadly speaking correct because most of us did have a say. And what's wrong with the idea of when you're part of a society of having a very modest civic responsibility like that? All they're, all they're saying is that, you know, from time to time, and it's not very frequent, it's not even as frequent as it used to be, uh, you will have, uh, you'll be required to go to the polling booth and vote. Now, I know that, you know, there, there used to be purists who say, well, you know, the right to vote should be balanced with the right not to vote. And technically, well, of can. course, it you is. Just, you don't have to fill out the ballot. That's just, right. You have to attend. Yeah, You that's have to right. attend. Yeah. Uh, please, please fill out the ballot. And it um, does go to the legitimacy of the parliament that we end up with because, we, you know, we've had a very high turnout, very small proportion of the electorate doesn't vote. Uh, and uh, we have, uh, as you say, we have governments that you can – you don't really have to have an argument about like you could have an argument about with, say, Donald Trump, you know, where he's obviously come three million votes shorter than Hillary Clinton, got a, got the – you know, got the vote in the right places, you know, for their electoral college. But this is a system that we would be crazy to try and replicate any aspect of. Well, well, I think the yeah. other thing, just quickly to make a point, is that the other thing about compulsory voting is preferential voting. I mean, compulsory preferential voting is, you know, the two of those things together, I think, do give us a, um, I think, a, a system which uh, we'd be mad to tinker with. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I guess the other the other sort of thing to kind of note um, is that, you know, over time uh, pe we've gotten further and further away from the suffrage battles which empowered us to be able to vote. So, you know, as societies we don't seem to value 
this uh, right to vote in quite the same way that people who were granted the right to vote at some point in their adult life or in living memory um, had. And and that kind of explains why one of the reasons why, like societies change as well, that we don't have this necessarily the same sort of civic culture around voting. And compulsory voting um, and having polling day and having the democracy sausage, which is probably one of the only things that is actually unique about Australian politics, democracy sausages. Um, the is, name of this podcast. That's the name I mean, of this it's podcast. named after this podcast, or was it the other way around? I'm not sure. Exactly. Um, it, you know, does uh, insulate Australia from some of these other factors, these uh, sort of anti kind of um, democratic factors that are at play in other polities overseas. So it does sort of force this collective and communal and democratic uh, process. Um, so I, I, I don't think we should tinker with uh, compulsory voting um, or uh, like the way we vote. Like we, we should still have to vote in person on paper with a pencil. Yes. Well, that, that, there's been some absolutely great questions. So I think we'll leave that there for today. But uh, thank you very much to Catherine Murphy. Of course, I should have mentioned that you have your own podcast, Australian Politics Live, which is an extremely successful pod. A great listen. That. Thank you. Get amongst it, people. It's great. And Maria Taflaga, thank you very much. Uh, we'll see you again next week for Democracy Sausage. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.